Hello and welcome to today's segment of Guests and Requests on Blackhawk College Radio. I'm Paddy Keane. And I'm Thomas Burns. And today we're here with former Irish Olympic swimmer Gary O'Toole. We're very lucky to have Gary on today to talk about his life inside and out of the swimming pool and to discuss his recent BBC podcast entitled Where is George Gibney? Welcome Gary. Thank you Patrick. I believe Thank this, you Thomas. I believe this isn't your first time on Blackhawk College Radio. No, I'm a return guest. Uh, I was on Blackrock College Radio uh, way back in the uh, 90s because my brother went to Blackrock College. Um, he was the black sheep of the family. Uh, three of us went to Presentation College Bray and he was the youngest and he went into Blackrock College um, in first year and boarded uh, uh, in Blackrock College. So. Um, when he was doing what you're doing now in fourth year, uh, I was invited on. Uh, I think it was part of a small interview and a lecture that I gave to the to the students. But those were pre-COVID days when people could meet and uh, um, gatherings in the school uh, hall yeah. were allowed. So it's very different. It's good to be back. Yeah. You couldn't afford me the last time. You <laughs> saved up and loads of money for me now after this. Yeah. 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 All right, so let's start by discussing your early life. So you grew up in Bray? Yeah, I was uh, born in, uh, in, in Dublin. Um, my parents are from Bray, uh, so moved home uh, into our house in, uh, the, in Charnwood Estate in Bray, which was about a 10-minute walk from Presentation College. Uh, so everything was uh, local then. I mean, it was very seldom that you would hear of anyone move anywhere else. Uh, so uh, schooling was local, sport was local, everything was done in uh, you know it's like being in lockdown in a five kilometer uh, radius from where you lived so if you happened to be uh, close to a certain school that played rugby you went there and you played rugby if it was a school that played GAA you went there and played GAA so I had uh, three brothers uh, as I've said before uh, three of us went to uh, Prez and uh, the younger one then uh, moved uh, to Blackrock in uh, first year as a boarder so it was all very local was it the same busy place as it is today? Um, Bray was different then, you know. Uh, it, Bray was, um, it, it was, it seemed like a big trip uh, to come into Dublin. Uh, the, there was no dart, uh, the, the, the trains, you drove, ran, uh, you drove up or you got a, a train that uh, left uh, uh, the station in Bray and uh, next stop would have been uh, in uh, the centre of town. So there was no or Dunleary, so you'd stop in Dunleary, um, and then the next stop after Dunleary would have been uh, into town. So the Dart, uh, when when it came online, was absolutely fantastic. It revela- revolutionised things, and you have to remember, uh, Paddy, uh, that um, you know people used to go to Bray on their holidays uh, from Dublin. Uh, so that, far that, that wasn't unheard of. Um, so when all of that uh, stopped, uh, Bray went through a difficult period and it's kind of going through a difficult period now in terms economically and everything and it just hasn't found itself. And what did your parents do? My mum was a stay-at-home mum and uh, so she looked after uh, the four boys and my dad was a printer. So he served his time as an apprentice printer in a, in a place in Lithographic Universal in Bray. Again, you know, everything was local so he was born and bred in Bray. His father was a bread man um, and uh, they used to live in a, uh, a council house on O'Byrne Road. Um, and um, so it was a very, very small house, but yet they had a stables at the back of the house for the horse. Uh, so they had a horse at the back of their house for, to deliver the bread for uh, Johnson Mooney and O'Brien. Uh, so it was very, very different times. Uh, so. One horse would take the bread out of uh, Dublin where the bread was made. He'd collect it uh, at the outskirts of Bray and deliver it around Bray. So he was well known around Bray, but he died early. So my dad went uh, as an apprentice, left school early and uh, took up an apprenticeship in uh, in printing. Now, it, that was a big thing uh, because uh, you used to have typesetters that would go and uh, set down the font and the print and then they'd have big printing machines that uh, would roll over that font and that's how you uh, delivered the uh, the paper. Yeah. Now with the advent of computers and everything, that's that's uh, done faster. done away with. Yeah, so there's no such thing as a a printer by trade now, now anymore. So he nearly made it to the end of his career before he retired, but um, he was made redundant from that printing trade and then went into um, 
he worked in St. Joseph's in Salinagan in the for the soccer team out there. So that's that's what he used to do before he retired completely. Yeah, and you have the three brothers, and then one of them went to Blackrock, the rest you went to Presbury. How was Presbury? Do you like it there? Uh, Pres was fantastic uh, for me. Uh, coincidentally, when I went there at the age of three, I went there very young, but at the age of three, they just opened a swimming pool, which was uh, just, uh, you know, fortuitous uh, and serendipity. And added to that, a, a, a PE teacher from what was then the NIHE Limerick, uh, wanted to teach people how to swim. She had uh, taught herself how to teach people how to swim, if that makes sense from a book. Yeah. And uh, also, she didn't swim herself. No, no. And she came back to Bray and made it her focus that she would teach all the students how to how to swim. So she got this book, learned how, to, you know, learned the basics, and then uh, taught us how to how to swim. So every pupil in the school learned how to swim from her. So it, it was. It was very fortunate, you know, um, uh, all of these coincidences uh, resulted in me going on and having a, a, a sporting career in swimming, uh, as did my brothers, but as, as did everyone else in Presentation College who learned how to swim uh, as, as a result of her uh, taking them on. But she left the school when I was uh, nine and she became a Carmelite nun, uh, which is an enclosed order. So they, they went into this uh, big religious house and they weren't allowed any communication with the outside. Uh, they couldn't see anyone um, uh, and it, it seems strange now in the world of technology where the internet yeah. makes everyone uh, um, immediately available to everyone else but at that stage uh, no one uh, they were cut off from the world they were allowed out to vote uh, if there was a general election or a referendum or if some of their family died yeah, but that was about it so is that where you started swimming in Presbury? Yeah, I started swimming there by accident. Uh, my cousin, uh, who was a couple of years older than me, he went there during the summertime before I went to the school and he um, uh, told me how exciting it was to be in the swimming pool. But he was winding me up. He was uh, just uh, making me feel bad because he had been there and I hadn't experienced it yet. So he was uh, he was trying to make me feel bad about the fact that he knew what it was like to be in a swimming pool and I didn't. And he never stopped going on about it. And the more he went on about it, the more I pestered my mother to take me to the swimming pool. So eventually she decided that she'd take me to the swimming pool and she paid the 5p or whatever it was at that time, went into the swimming pool and she didn't understand that, you know, it, it, it's not like a dog or something or a duck, you know, that uh, you, you don't just put a child into water and they're uh, able <laughs> to swim. But she, she undressed me and then just said, off you go now, enjoy your swimming. I think she was just glad to see the back of me for a while that I'd shut up then. So I just jumped into the swimming pool and um, uh, realized quite quickly after a couple of seconds that you do not automatically know how to swim. And uh, I bobbed back up again, uh, struggled to the side of the wall and held onto the side of the wall going around the pool for about an hour. And um, that was it. Uh, so I wasn't frightened by it. I liked it and went back several times after that. And then a couple of months later, went to school for the first time. And that was it. Uh, Gwen taught me how to swim properly and uh, we were off. And when you first got into organised swimming, were you good from the start? Were you always faster? Uh, well, we started swimming then uh, and she would enter us in competitions, uh, for schools competitions. But uh, because I started so young then, the youngest competition that you can go into really is uh, under eights. So I swam in the uh, under eights in the community games, uh, which is still going actually. Um, I swam under eight when I was six, and um, um, you know, uh, like a like a baby amongst uh, people kids. who were who were eight. Uh, yeah. um, but uh, went back, uh, didn't didn't uh, progress out of my heat that first year, but then went back the following year and won it. And then uh, uh, was I good from the start? Yeah, I was good from from the start, but I had the advantage of having someone who was keen uh, on uh, teaching me how to swim. And I was a uh, an avid listener, and I was uh, very uh, anxious to make sure that uh, I didn't let her down. So I did all of that, and uh, it, it worked out well in the end. Yeah. But there was times in my career where you no, know, I wasn't uh, the best around. Uh, but that was later on, you know. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I was good from the start. But I had a lot of advantages. Let's say. Did you play any other sports? 
I played rugby right up until uh, um, uh, senior cup level. Um, Did you enjoy it? Um, I loved it. Uh, really loved it. It was very different uh, to what the swimming was, and uh, sure the, the training was. I'm sure it's changed now, but if you're swimming for two hours in the morning time and an hour and a half in the evening time and you're uh, and you're training away when someone tells you that you have to train for rugby for an hour and a half after school two days a week and play a match of the weekend you say that's easy you know yeah. so it was very very easy to do that uh, so i played all the way up uh, we didn't have a successful junior cup run um uh, we were very unfortunate and then i remember when i was knocked out of the junior cup uh, down in donnybrook going into the change rooms afterwards and uh, everyone was upset including myself uh, but the following day i was getting on a plane to go to uh, germany uh, to swim in a in german open competition in bonn so i just decided after that you know it was probably better if i just swam um i f flirted with the idea of playing then in uh, sixth year um and the team that i played with was very very good um, but I decided not to play uh, in that cup run. Yeah. Uh, they were knocked out in the semi-finals uh, by um, uh, De La Salle College, um, which was absolutely devastating for Presentation College Bray, but not as devastating as the final when De La Salle College beat Black Rock College in the final. So we were kind of... Uh, <laughs> we were very uh, upset, but then we realised how good a team this De La Salle team were because yeah. they went on and won the, won the cup. And they won the cup in 83 and again and in 85, which was the year that I decided not to play uh, after my junior cup run. Uh, and ironically enough, one of my best friends was on that Black Rock College team playing hooker in the in the 85 final. And even more ironically, the out half uh, from the uh, De La Salle team um, who absolutely destroyed us in the semi-final. He was a beast of an out half. Uh, later went with me to the Olympic Games in 88 uh, as a wrestler. Um, David Harmon was his name. And he did the same to Black Rock as he did to Presentation College in the, in, in, in the final. So it, it's interesting to watch those things, but things happen for a reason. All right, so now it's about time for your first song, One Tree Hill by U2. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us a bit why you chose this song and what it means to you? Well, I've always liked this song uh, since it came out in the Joshua Tree. And... Uh, um, uh, the 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 one tree hill is a uh, is a monument uh, just outside Auckland in New Zealand uh, for uh, all the soldiers uh, who were uh, killed overseas uh, and today being Remembrance Sunday th this would have yeah. a big uh, um, uh, usually have a big gathering uh, on it. Uh, Bono wrote this song about his roadie uh, who uh, borrowed his Harley Davidson whilst he was in Ireland and uh, was knocked off the bike or had a crash and died uh, and uh, uh, they wrote this song about uh, him and how they uh, paid tribute to him when they were down in Auckland by uh, going up to the top of this monument and you know it's a nice song but I always thought it was very poignant so when I went on um, uh, three years ago we went on the Lions tour to New Zealand myself and my friend it was my second time to New Zealand uh, with the Lions uh, and uh, on this occasion, I said, I'm definitely, when I'm in Auckland, I'm going to go up uh, this one tree hill and uh, pay my respects to these people. And so it was the Sunday after the third test, uh, which was the drawn test. And myself and my friend Morris Nelligan were, uh, were due to fly home the following day. And I had booked a restaurant in uh, just outside Auckland on, in the shadows of One Tree Hill. It's a famous restaurant called One Tree Grill. Uh, um, and... Uh, we got the taxi driver to drive us to the park uh, first and the park was closed uh, so we couldn't uh, climb up the, one, tree, uh, yeah. one tree hill which is very disappointing but then as we went to dinner uh, myself and Morris and uh, a couple of bottles of wine later we decided that we'd come all this way and we were not going to be stopped at going to the top of the one one tree hill <laughs> so we found this housing estate and uh, hopped over someone's back garden uh, into the park and um, made, your way up. made our way up this. Now, if you listen to the song, uh, you'll hear Bono talk about uh, we turned away to face the darkness, enduring chill as the day turns the night to day turns into night over one tree hill. And myself and Morris, uh, it was a stiff climb to get up to the top of one tree hill and there was sheep and everyone in, in the way and there was 
sheep excrement all over the place and Morris was wearing brand new Lacoste white runners and he, they were absolutely destroyed. We slid down the side of the mountain at least two or three times trying to get up to the top. We made it up to the top and halfway up I turned to Morris and I said, there's no way Bono did this. There's no way Bono climbed up this, uh, this, this hill, up to this monument. So we got up to the top of the monument anyway and we took pictures of each other up the top and then it's a beautiful uh, vista over Auckland. Uh, couldn't believe how nice it looked and then we walked around to the other side of the monument and there was this uh, tree-lined driveway that was fully lit up that was uh, the easy path up to One Tree Hill. So we had gone, gone the, long way the, the long way round without a path. Uh, so at least we made it up to the top, had our pictures taken. So the song uh, would remind me of that.
with guest requests. We're here with Gary O'Toole. We just listened to his first song, One Tree Hill by U2. We are talking about your early life, Gary, and now we're going to talk about your swimming career. When was your first international competition? First international competition was uh, after the uh, uh, Junior Cup match uh, that when we were knocked out, uh, and the next day flew to Bonn to represent Ireland in the uh, German Open. Um, uh, before that, I'd be a member of Irish schools teams. Um, it's different to what rugby would like, where the Irish schools team is only uh, around under 18 years of age. So you could be an Irish school representative at the age of 14. Uh, so I had done that, uh, but the full international wasn't until um, I was uh, 15. Yeah, and that was in Germany. How well did you do in that competition? Uh, personally, for me, uh, I thought I did very well. Um, but um, you have to remember then as a 15 or uh, nearly 16 year old, you're competing against people who are Olympians and who are world champions. Uh, so it wasn't there, I wasn't there to compete at that level. I was just there to do personal bests and uh, Irish records, which I did manage, which was great. Uh, so that, that was all fine, uh, but it gave me a stepping stone. So if I put it in context for you, uh, in that first meet when I went to Germany that time for the 200 meters breaststroke, I did an Irish record of 2 minutes 28 seconds. And in that same meet, uh, six years later, um, six years later, uh, I uh, did a European record of 2 minutes uh, 10, 2 minutes 11 seconds. So I had dropped uh, 27 seconds. Uh, so that's the difference, but you could still compete at that yeah. uh, slower time. But at that time, uh, when I went for the first, uh, on the first occasion, that was a personal best for me. So yeah, it was, uh, when I look back at it now, I said, how did I have the gumption to stand up swimming so slowly to compete against these people? But that was just the way it was in those days. I believe you went to the Olympics in Seoul and in Barcelona. Yeah, two Olympics, uh, 88 and 92. Uh, two very different experiences because uh, 88, again, I was just uh, climbing up the ladder. Um, so when I finished 17th at the 88 Olympic Games uh, at, at a, a field of about 70, that's not bad. Um, and I always felt I'd do better. And certainly the following year and the year after that, um, I improved and kept on improving but then uh, at the 92 olympic games things were a little bit different going into the 92 olympic games uh, preparation didn't go as well um, and uh, i i ended up 17th again so if you can imagine uh, my career and those achievement perspectives of, as being a bit of a mountain the peak of the mountain was uh, around 1990 uh, and the two opposite sides, the up and the down of the mountain, would have been the two Olympic Games. So I encountered the Olympic Games in Seoul on my way up and the Barcelona Olympic Games, on the way down. unfortunately, on the way down, yeah. What kind of sacrifice do you have to make to get to the Olympics? Um, I think it was all time, uh, mostly. Uh, um, uh, that you, you spend an awful lot of time in the water training. Uh, we, uh, prior to the Olympic Games, uh, certainly in the two years uh, you know, leading up to 88 and between the Olympic Games, wherever you could, because I was at college at that time, you could be spending up to six hours in the water training. Uh, so you would be training three separate individual sessions of two hours each time. So from half five to half seven, and then again from about 11 until one, and then again from four until six. So you can see there's an awful lot of time. Uh, so you make sacrifices, you don't do other things. You can't go yeah. out in the evening time. Um, and that's, that's essentially it. And then how do you feel to represent Ireland at those games? Uh, at both games, uh, yeah. I mean, it's an honour to represent your country no matter what uh, uh, sport uh, you're doing, you know, and you have to consider that other people put all of that effort in and don't get to represent their country. So that's what it's all about at the end. Uh, uh, representing your country is one thing and then you know when you get to earn an Irish jersey or an Irish cap uh, you start looking and you want to achieve a little bit more so you start looking at uh, medals uh, and stuff like that and when you don't achieve uh, medals then you start to get disappointed but it's only uh, when you're a long time retired that you realize well you know you did represent your country and you should be tremendously proud of that. What was it like going around the Olympic village and seeing all the other well, that was that was uh, 
that was part of the awe of the whole thing you know you uh, you walk around and uh, the 88 olympic games was was open to tennis players uh, so they were the first professionals that came in so the likes of michael stick or boris becker uh, and you're just sitting down having dinner uh, or having breakfast or lunch and they're sitting at the table opposite you and they're just uh, you know very very normal and then the 92 Olympic Games uh, was the Dream Team Olympic Games, the US uh, basketball team uh, led by Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson. Um, and they were so um, um, famous uh, that they couldn't stay in the Olympic Village. Uh, so they stayed in a hotel outside of Barcelona where they were uh, cordoned off. Uh, such would have been the pestering that they would have uh, had at the hands of other athletes, not from the public, you know, yeah. just other athletes. So, yeah, it's interesting to see other people, you know, that they actually do walk like you walk. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's good to see. Well, do you like relax around the Olympic Village and in between like swimming sessions? Well, they have everything available to you at the Olympic Village. You have to understand, you know, you can get anything you want at the Olympic Village. You can, you know, from getting a McDonald's at two o'clock in the morning time or to... Uh, having a game of uh, it, it, you have to understand there's a different era so uh, big at that time were computer games you know so they would have a room full of computer games that you could just walk up and there was never any queue for them or anything like that and um, you know the it, it, it was it, it was quite exceptional uh, anything that an athlete could possibly want he could get at any single time of the day in the Olympic Village you know and uh, I remember at that uh, at the 92 Olympic Games uh, one of my great friends, uh, Victor Costello, another BlackRock uh, um, graduate who was representing Ireland in the shot put at that time. Um, we'd be coming home because we were finished competing after a week uh, at the 92 Olympic Games. We had to stay there for another 10 days uh, because we had to come home as a team. Um, we were finished early and uh, we'd be going for our McDonald's at six o'clock in the morning and the Irish boxers would be getting up to do their boxing matches at they'd be having their breakfast we'd be sitting opposite them having mcdonald's to go back and sleep off a, a few beers and uh, they'd be going off to fight for ireland uh, so it was, it was a peculiar place to be part of what was the build-up to races like what was your kind of preparation for it well it, it was always kind of the same because you would always know at the exact minute that you would be required to be in the ready room so you could time it uh, and then you could warm up uh, in the warm-up pool behind the stand, okay? So you could do your warm-up, uh, get out of the warm-up, uh, be ready in like 20 minutes beforehand, um, get your hat and your goggles, get to the ready room, sit there. An awful lot of people like to chat in the ready room. Uh, that's not my uh, cup of tea. I like to just sit there and just be quiet. And then uh, they put you in on, on the seats in order of how you're going to march out onto the onto the pool bank. And then you walk out from one of the stands out of the pool bank. The same as any sporting event when you walk out into an arena. That's, whether you're playing hurling, soccer, Gaelic, uh, it's, it's always the same. And, uh, and that was it. Which was your favourite Olympics out of the two? And the favourite Olympic Games certainly was the 88 Olympic Games because um, uh, it, it was the uh, first time there. I had no pressure on me. Going to the 92 Olympic Games, I was expected to perform an awful lot better and didn't. Um, so that was disappointing. Uh, um, so I was expected to be competitive at the uh, at the ninety two Olympic Games. At least expected to finish in the top six because the previous year I'd ranked fourth in the world, uh, and then to finish seventeenth uh, was a great underachievement and for many people a failure. So yeah, eighty eight is much better. <laughs> Did you witness uh, much doping kind of stuff? Or anyone around the Olympics? Uh, sure. I mean, in nineteen eighty eight, uh, I swam in a uh, in the two hundred meters uh, individual medley, and there was a guy uh, swimming beside me. He was representing East Germany. Now you have to remember that Germany was divided into East and West Germany in the eighty eight Olympic Games, and um, he, I, I, we to do an individual medley, you have to swim one length of butterfly, one length of backstroke, one length of breaststroke. And uh, I was ahead of him at the 150 meter mark turning onto the freestyle. I turned onto the freestyle leg of that and uh, he um, he went by me like as if it was the first 50 meters of the race. I couldn't believe how powerful he was. Uh, um, his name was Rick Henneman. And it really was a sobering thing for me to get out of the pool to be beaten that badly by someone. Now he, he put 0.6 of a second into me 
over the last 50 meters but i knew that uh, uh you know to get 0.6 of a second over 50 meters at that at that level that was he was in a different class uh, so i was very very disappointed yeah and he went on and he competed in the olympic final and i missed out on competing in the uh, in 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 the reserve final that 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 day and i took my beating and i went off and that was fine then a couple of years later, he wrote about how he was taking uh, performance-enhancing drugs, uh, which was federation-sponsored. It wasn't that he was doing it on his own. So uh, there was a reason why he was so good over the last 50 metres. And it wasn't because he had trained harder or prepared better than me or was more talented than me. It was just purely down to drugs. And that's when it really hit me for the first time, you know, that there's an awful lot of that out there. Uh, but if you start thinking like that, well, then you'll always be wondering and you get a little bit embittered by the whole sport. I can tell you that the person who uh, won the Olympic Games in 92 when I was supposed to swim very well was clean. And that's a great um, satisfaction to me. The person that won the Olympic Games in 88, uh, I would have grave doubts about. Uh, so, um, But that's just the way it is. And when you get to that level of sport, you know in your heart and heart who's taking drugs and who isn't. You said there's many people like nowadays in swimming doing with drugs. Uh, I think it's probably worse now because of the fact that there's more money to be made from the sport. Uh, anywhere where there's money involved, uh, corruption will follow and drugs uh, follows uh, money. So if you can give yourself any form of an advantage over uh, a fellow swimmer, well, then you're going to take it, yeah. So I do think it's 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 still rampant. Do you keep in touch with any uh, former like competitors? Well, there's a few that you would uh, touch bases with every so often. Um, there's a when I won the European Championship silver medal, the guy that won the uh, European Championship gold medal, uh, we'd be in touch uh, infrequently, um, um, but you know everyone goes on. It was an amateur sport, and everyone goes on to a career after that. Um, but if I if I was to tell you that I still swim with a swimmer twice a week that I used to swim with when I was nine, well, then you realise uh, how uh, swimming can affect your life. I mean, there's very few rugby players that can say that they still play rugby at, at the age of 52 with someone who they used to play rugby with at the age of nine. So it's nice to be yeah. able to do that. And that's what the sport offers you. What was your favourite race throughout your whole career? Uh, the most enjoyable race that I had was uh, the European Championship uh, where I finished second and then was for, for a moment ranked second in the world um, it, because those kind of races take nothing out of you. You don't feel tired. It's quite, it's quite a strange feeling. Um, and then after that, when I won the World Student Games Championships the following year, that was similarly uh, one of those experiences, like an outer body experience. Uh, um, those races uh, will always stick in my mind um, and I suppose when looking back at it now my last race uh, where I where I swam a 4 by 200 meter uh, freestyle relay for Ireland uh, at the European Championships in uh, in Sheffield and I hadn't trained well uh, beforehand uh, there was other things going on in my life and this was in 93 and I knew I was going to retire after this and I hadn't prepared well and I was swimming up the third length and I said oh my god this is hard but i saw the funny side of it and by the time i came down the fourth length i just i hopped out of the pool and i never swam a race again after that never raced anyone after that uh, it was i was i was done uh, competing so uh, that sticks in my mind and now we're gonna listen to a uh, feel so close by calvin harris why did you like this song uh, this song reminds me of the uh, of the Olympic Games, but not my Olympic Games. Uh, Olympic Games in two thousand and twelve, uh, when I went over uh, uh, with a friend of mine uh, to uh, to be a spectator. I always wanted to go back to spectate at the Olympic Games, and London being so close, um, we decided myself and my friend that we'd go over. So I was over there for the week of the swimming and. Um, on the morning of the 200 meter breaststroke heats, um, the pool was absolutely uh, mobbed with people. So there'd be about, I'd say about 300 people in the swimming pool. So to pick someone out was kind of strange. And I saw this guy swimming breaststroke and he got out of the pool um, and he's kind of uh, jumping up and down. Now it's a big stadium and I just happened to catch his eye. And I saw his coach talking to him, trying to calm him down. And he got back in again 
and he swam another 50 metres. He got back out again and the coach was desperately trying to calm him down as he was so excited. I said, that guy's going to do something. Uh, and I was able to make out, because I had binoculars with me, I was able to make out from the stands uh, his name on the side of his hat. And his name was Michael Jameson. And he was uh, representing Great Britain. He wasn't really one of the favourites, but I could tell by uh, the fact that uh, he was uh, so excited by what he was doing in the heats. I was able to tell my friend Jim to watch out for this guy. And uh, at the time when he was jumping up and down uh, and his coach was trying to calm him down, uh, Calvin Harris, feel so close, uh, was playing on the, on the speaker and it always reminds me of Michael Jameson. And then the following day, myself and Jim went back to the final of the 200 metres breaststroke and he was nine one hundredths off winning the gold medal. He came second. So he was ranked, say, 14th in the world going into it. And he was nine one hundredths from winning the gold medal at the, uh, at the uh, London Olympic Games. So that's why. I feel so close to you right now. It's a force field. I wear my heart up on my sleeve like a big deal. Your love bars down on me, surround me like a waterfall. And there's no stopping us right now. I feel so close to you right now right now and there's no stopping us right now I feel so close to you right now to guess in a quest with Gary O'Toole. That was Feel So Close by Calvin Harris and we were just talking about your swimming career. Now, all right, so obviously it would be hard to do this interview without talking about George Gibney and the whole story about that. I know you've spoken about this in the media over the years and of course you recently did a podcast with the BBC called Where Is George Gibney? Do you want to just give us some background information about that and the whole story behind it? Sure, so George Gibney was my coach from the age of about eight until the age of uh, 21. And he was my coach until someone uh, pointed out to me that he was a paedophile. 
And after I found that out, I left uh, the his uh, coaching and left his club, but swam on for a couple of years and went to the Olympic Games the following year. And that's why Barcelona was so tough because it, I knew what was going on in the background. And then in 1993, uh, when I came back from a year, well, after the Olympic Games in 92, um, I had lived in America for the year before the Olympic Games. Uh, I came back and I went around and tried to uh, find some other victims of uh, George Gibney. Now, he never abused me. He did try on one occasion, but there were other people that weren't so lucky. Uh, so I went around and tried to um, gather all of those people. And sure enough, they came forward. A, um, a case was issued by the Director of Public Prose Prosecutions. And in the end, uh, courtesy of a three to two uh, split vote by the Supreme Court here in Ireland, it was decided that too much time had elapsed between some of his crimes uh, and he had no defence, he had no diaries or anything else. So he was uh, acquitted and he was allowed to go. And he fled uh, firstly to Scotland and then to the United States of America. And the recent podcast uh, done by the BBC Sounds, uh, Mark Horgan and Kieran Cassidy, of uh, Second Captain's fame, which is the podcast uh, here in Ireland, uh, they they tracked him down, and it was about uh, uh, how they found him, and more about the story behind um, how he escaped, and uh, it gave voice to some of his victims that uh, he had abused all those years ago. How did you realize that there are many other victims around? Well, when, when one person told me uh, it was a case of uh, an event that occurred to me, uh, uh, that happened to me, uh, ha, uh, made perfect sense. And then I was able to think of other individuals that had drifted away from swimming or rather quite abruptly stopped swimming um, and who had been isolated from friends, uh, etc. And in a typical grooming fashion had been groomed for abuse uh, uh, by George Gibney. So it was a matter of trying to contact them. So he was trying to think of my past. After all, I had been with him at that stage for 13 years. And so an awful lot of people had passed through the swimming club um, that, uh, that I knew. And uh, uh, it was uh, trying to track them down was, was the difficult part. Do you think something like that could still happen today? I think that it's um, from, from the perspective of students uh, and people that perhaps are listening to this podcast, uh, it would be online uh, uh, grooming and online um, uh, paedophiles that would be looking to take advantage of the, the situations. I think that in, in, in sport, uh, there are certainly um, uh, what, what we would call now fail-safe measures that would uh, make sure that uh, nobody was uh, left in situations where they could be vulnerable to that kind of abuse. It doesn't mean to say that it couldn't go on. Of course, it could go on, and I'm sure it still does. Uh, but that kind of grand scale abuse where one person has access to hundreds of uh, children that are vulnerable, uh, I think that an awful lot of laws that have been instigated since George Gibney uh, would, would see to it that uh, children are much more safer now than they were previously. And looking back, would there have been people in the swimming club who would have been a bit off? That always happened. It, it, it was, uh, it, it, there was a template uh, for the abuse. So firstly, they'd be outgoing, they'd be sociable, they'd be talking, then they'd have lots of friends. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, they would be uh, ostracized from their friends. Uh, they would be isolated. Uh, they would still come swimming and, and often would still be performing extremely well. Um, but there was no joy in it anymore uh, and uh, they would often uh, after a swimming event wouldn't uh, socialize with the rest of the uh, of the swimmers so that kind of behavior that you'd wonder why they were doing swimming and it was a case of well I've got to be this serious uh, in order to be as good as I want to be if I want to go to the Olympic Games so it could be put down to that but it wasn't that it was just that they weren't allowed to be um, uh, social. The next song you chose was Sorrow by David Bowie. Was there any particular reason why you chose this song? Well, I think that this song is, as as it says on the tin, sorrowful. It's quite uh, apt that you should uh, uh, play it after this because there are uh, many, many people that I know that I was swim swimming with and swam with uh, whose 
life uh, has been absolutely ruined uh, by uh, the actions of one certain uh, individual, George Gibney. Um, and it's not that they, they were abused by George Gibney and that, that they can compartmentalize that part of their life and get on with their life in an ordinary fashion thereafter. There isn't uh, one hour of uh, one day that they uh, wouldn't be thinking about this and what went on. It makes every single aspect of their life more difficult to deal with uh, on an ongoing basis. So um, it's quite an apt song. in a quest that was sorrow by david bowie and now gary i want to talk about your current life so you're now a medical doctor an orthopedic surgeon was medicine always something you were interested in always from an early age uh, felt that there was uh, I, that's something that i wanted to do um so uh, in in i always joke uh, with people uh, that in of the four boys that we have uh, we uh, we have a doctor uh, we have a lawyer uh, we have a banker and then the fourth boy is happy. Uh, he went to BlackRock. <laughs> so he works in com computers. Uh, but it's, it, it was the quintessential uh, uh, way uh, that people were brought up in, in my era, that uh, you would um, try and get something that was going to uh, secure, be secure on an ongoing basis. So um, you either try to get a job in the civil service uh, which meant that you were permanently uh, em employed and, and would have a pension at the end of it all uh, um, uh, or get a good uh, job as a, a as a lawyer or whatever so medicine was uh, always something that was uh, appealing to me um, and I, I can't give you any instance uh, it wasn't a case of uh, you know my one of my brothers uh, spent a lot of time in Crumlin Hospital when he was uh, younger for a, a lot of different uh, uh, problems. Um, and it wasn't that, it wasn't that I was going with him to Crumlin Hospital and seeing the yeah. doctors and the nurses there. It was just kind of a, a, a gradual thing that grew. I, I knew that I didn't want to be an accountant, I didn't want to be a, a, a solicitor. Um, uh, so all of the options were, were falling by and I'm not saying that medicine was the one that was left when everyone else was dismissed. It was just a case of uh, I, I always wanted to do it. 
Um, and then when you get into medicine, you find, holy moly, uh, there's so many different choices within the field of medicine that uh, it's it's a myriad uh, of different choices uh, and I think was very lucky with what I stumbled upon uh, and uh, doing surgery rather than medicine was much more appealing to me and then doing orthopedic surgery uh, and being able to marry that with the work that I do with orthopedic oncology that's cancer uh, was important at the end of the day. Do you still do much swimming? So I swim um, now with lockdown of course it's very very difficult um, but before I came here, um, I had just been swimming in Sea Point, uh, so I'm still swimming in the sea. I've never swam in November in the sea. Uh, I usually stop. Is it cold? It, it is absolutely freezing. It's Baltic. Uh, well, I find it. Uh, and then you see people getting into the sea and they, they, they just walk in. There's no pause. Uh, it, I, I just can't believe that they're able to do it. Um, but I would swim maybe two kilometers, uh, so swim from Sea Point down to Dunleary and back, and then um, it's it's great headspace. Uh, and yeah. if I if the pools were open, I'd be I still swim three times a week. Yeah. So how has COVID been for you apart from not being able to go to sporting events? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's that's the that's a huge thing. Yeah. Um, and for someone like me, uh, you you know, not being able to socialize with friends uh, is is. Um, is very difficult yeah. um, I'm not saying that I have it uh, I have it hard I don't I still go out to work every single day because we're essential uh, workers so we can still go and do our work as uh, as we were doing previously our work has changed a little bit because of COVID uh, but um, after the first lockdown the first lockdown was uh, extremely strict uh, it changed working conditions uh, hugely uh, I, I find that difficult because I'm a person of habit and I like to do things um, the same way all the time. So I, I was finding that difficult uh, as, uh, you know, the the goalposts kept on moving because uh, as this thing took a hold and nobody knew what was happening really. And I mean, it, hopefully it's our first and our last pandemic that I'll have to live through. Um, but yeah, this this second lockdown is... A little bit easier, I think. Yeah, it's uh, different. It, well, it is a little bit different, uh, but I, I'm not as I, I'm not going as mad uh, this time. You know, the first lockdown was an excuse to enjoy yourself a yeah. little bit, and then as it as it went on, it kind of got tiresome. Uh, this one, you're just saying, well, no, we we have to be more strict on ourselves, etc. So, I I I I I'm not going to be one of these people and say that I've learned an awful lot about myself through COVID. I hate it. I hate the lockdown and uh, sooner the better this is over with uh, I'll be a happy person yeah so it's about time for in between days by the cure now again what does this song mean to you so the cure um, they represent a group uh, which probably when I was your age uh, we didn't do transition year so I went straight from third year into fifth year and then after sixth year, I went on uh, uh, inter uh, interrail, which I, I still think people do today. Yeah, around go Europe. Around Europe. Uh, so you pay, I think it was like uh, 150 pounds and you can go on the uh, on the cheap uh, uh, trains from anywhere. And um, this song always reminds me of a group of uh, people that we met uh, when we were on interrail, myself and my friend. Uh, and we met them on a, uh, on a train uh, from Paris to Rome. Um, and this was the song that they were playing uh, and they played it all the time uh, so The Cure were a massive band uh, during the 80s uh, and I think that this is their best song and it always reminds me of the friendships that I made when I was when I was interrailing one particular guy uh, and there all all these people were from Glasgow they all supported Celtic so when they heard that we were from Dublin they embraced us into yeah. their group of eight and we were allowed to travel as a group of ten then and um about so we did the interrailing in in um in 1986 and um in 1996 uh, having never met uh, this group again since this guy called Jerry Hunter uh, came from Glasgow to Dublin and um it, you won't remember this but the 1996 was the Olympic games where Michelle Smith won three Olympic gold medals and an Olympic bronze medal and RTE were blanket coverage swimming and I was involved in that blanket coverage uh, uh, covering her uh, victories. And so I was 
quite a well-known person uh, yeah. at that particular time. So 10 years after meeting this guy on uh, inter-railing, inter uh, he decides that he would come to Dublin and he would look me up completely coincidentally. So when he arrived in Dublin airport, he got a taxi out to Ranla and he was staying here in Ranla and he, uh, he um, uh, went into a pub in Ranla and he said, do you know who, uh, who Gary O'Toole is? And he says, yeah, everyone knows who Gary O'Toole is. He says, do you know where he lives? He says, he lives out in Bray. He says, okay. So he got the dart out to Bray and uh, himself and his wife, and they walked up uh, from Bray station to the main street and walked into a shop and they said, do you know where Gary O'Toole lives? And uh, the shop assistant says, I don't know where he lives, but his brother is a solicitor and his office is just across the road there. So he didn't realize, uh, you know, he thought Dublin was a really like a village that yeah. everyone would know. Uh, and he, he still thought it was a village. Uh, uh, and uh, so after looking me up after 10 years without any contact, uh, we, we made contact again. And he invited me back then the following year for the opening of the Jockstein stand in, uh, in, in uh, Celtic Park, uh, which was opened by Celtic versus Liverpool game that Liverpool won 2-1. So it was fantastic uh, just to make friends like that again. Outside of that, there's a restaurant in Ranla called Host. I will eat anything off that menu. <laughs> Should I go out for nights out? <laughs> I think that's the biggest problem with this COVID that I'm missing in my nights out, you know. So, uh, yes, love it, love it. Favourite sport to watch? Uh, rugby. Do you support Leinster? Uh, I do support Leinster. I'm a Leinster season ticket holder and uh, I have fortunate enough to have seats in the Aviva as well for the Irish matches. So... I like watching rugby live. Uh, that yeah. would that would be my favorite. I love watching American football, college football uh, on, on the TV. I think that's uh, a marvelous spectacle. Have you ever gone to one of the games in the Viva, like the American football games? All the time, whenever they come over, all the time. So we were uh, booked in for the 29th of August this year to go to the American Classic, which was uh, the Notre Dame against the Navy. Uh, went there the last time that the Notre Dame played down Navy and it was such a spectacle, it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, and then every year, every second year, we'd try and go to a college football game abroad as well. Were you disappointed with the Ireland game? The last Ireland game yeah. that they had, Ireland-France? Yeah, France. Exactly. Well, of course I was disappointed to, to yeah. lose, but I didn't think, uh, you know, after after about 20 minutes that they were ever going to win the game. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, when they went in, uh, having missed uh, the uh, the... The attempt at a, a try uh, in the 40th minute, uh, instead of taking their points, I thought that that was a devastating uh, uh, time. And I didn't think they'd come back in the second half. Um, but I don't get too upset about these things. So I, I don't take it too personally. It's, it is entertainment, after all. Yeah. You said your favourite team was uh, Liverpool. Who's your favourite player? On the Liverpool team at the yeah. moment? I think uh, my favourite player on the Liverpool team would be Manny. 
Messi or Ronaldo? Uh, I prefer Messi. Uh, I did until uh, um, uh, there was all this shenanigans during the summertime. Do you remember that? Yeah. Where, where the uh, last yeah. May there was a lot of threatening uh, that he would go and uh, move to Manchester City. He kind of lost a little bit of the credit uh, then. Um, did you lose enough credit to be replaced by Ronaldo? Nah, I'd have to lose a lot. <laughs> did you travel many places uh, throughout your swimming career and stuff? What was your favourite place? Being all over the world uh, with uh, with swimming. I think the favourite place to be, uh, uh, perhaps uh, Hawaii. Uh, and I really enjoyed my time when I was uh, swimming in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I think the weather in Phoenix, Arizona is absolutely superb. You still watch more swimming, like go to the Olympics. Well, it doesn't get an awful lot of coverage on the yeah. TV, so I don't see it an awful lot. And, and do I keep up to date with swimming? I do. You know, I I look at the the swimming news uh, all the time, but I, I I don't know any of the swimmers anymore. Thanks for the interview. You're welcome. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Patrick.